All right. Uh, let's see. How about if you find First Thessalonians chapter four in your Bibles? First Thessalonians four. If you're doing a digital version, you might want to find verse thirteen. First Thessalonians four thirteen. I am going to knock this off, Mr. Brian. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I just know I'm going to knock it off. That's it. Plus, if they call me, I can't help them. Today, we're going to talk about another coming of Christ. That's the title I'm giving it in a funny way, because our theme is the coming of Christ. And I called it the coming of Christ in three stanzas and a course. The stanzas represent the time that Christ is, is really, it's an event when he comes to uh, fulfill parts of Scripture. The first coming, the birth of Christ, we've talked about last time together. Uh, we call that Christmas, the birth of Christ. That's his first coming. And we talked a lot about the prophecies related to that. The... Next coming, I call it another coming, because it gets confused. If I call it the second coming, then you might think, oh, that's that second coming everyone's talking about. And actually, that's the third coming. If you're doing the math, we're actually talking about another coming. Uh, after the first coming, there's another com- coming, and this is technically called the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about that today and uh, see how far we get. Uh, I honestly could get so excited we could be here on weeks on this one because it is it is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, but then we're going to talk about the final coming in this study too, and that is technically labeled the second coming of Christ and his literal thousand-year reign on this earth, and I believe it with all my heart. Uh, in between all those, we have to have a course, and it keeps going with every single stanza, and the chorus is, the righteous man shall live by faith. And I hope that it was adequately presented last week that those who were anticipating the birth of Christ had to live by faith. When they were expecting him to come, and we had examples of those who showed that they had the faith that God had promised, they were looking for it. They were looking for the coming of Christ. So, don't be surprised with this mixing into our study of the rapture today, because it is the chorus for the stanza we're going to look at. Uh, I am supposed to live today as if today is the day. And yet I'm also supposed to live as if my job isn't finished yet. There's a lot to do in a single day and a lot to say in a sermon. So uh, when I talk to you about the rapture, There's difficulty in teaching the rapture, I have to confess in that, because there are those who don't believe it. Quite honestly, there's a lot of people who don't believe in the rapture at all, and they like to emphasize certain things as what makes their point. One of them, it goes like this. The Bible doesn't say rapture anywhere. I love that one. Uh, Or... There is no place that says the whole doctrine of the rapture in a single verse. Just give me a single verse and I'll believe it. I actually had this 
talk about a week and a half ago with somebody. Another one. If the rapture were true, why, why does God, why doesn't he give it more attention? When we pull out the verses, there's not many. And you would say, well, maybe it's not all that important after all. Well, I'm going to simplify a lot this morning as I get started here to show you the argument for the rapture from Scripture. And I'm going to say this real simply. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of faith. And that's not a cop-out to say, well, (laughs) you know, that's the way people do it. Well, it's just a matter of faith. So they don't have any evidence. They don't have anything to argue from. They just say, it's a matter of faith. Uh, Actually, there was one I heard years ago writing on a a blog of some sort that said uh, the reason why Christians believe in the rapture is because they don't want to go through the tribulation period. And I said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to go through I'm not looking forward to anything like that. I hope you're not either. But uh, it's just funny how the arguments go back and forth. And it, it's, it's not a cop-out to say it's an issue of faith. Because in reality, the hardest things we are called to do on this earth are done by what? Faith. By faith. Faith is not some, you know, smeared over the top and everything's better. Faith is tough. Living by faith is not easy. Since when has it ever been easy? Go through the history of of mankind on this earth. Read about those who walk by faith and tell me any of them that had an easy life. Scripture doesn't record it that way. If it was easy, would it even need to have faith? My goal is to show you something real simplistic here this morning, that faith is a necessary ingredient in the study of the rapture. And I believe it's the part left out more times than not. God said there would be a day like this that we're going to study today. And if he didn't say all the pieces and all the parts in all one verse... (laughs) It's because he didn't want us to know all of it and all its pieces and all its parts. He did it on purpose so that we would have to live by faith. Because once you know everything, what do you need with faith? So in the design of what I want to talk to you about today, I'm going to keep coming back to it. But let's start with explaining the rapture in scientific terms, right? Now, I'm not talking about a test tube. I'm talking about the science of words and the science of grammatical structure. Most people say, but that was English class. That wasn't science. Actually, it is a science. The study of words and, and English, how it forms in, in the language, in any language for that matter, is a science. And God gave to us his word in the form of language, didn't he? You have a copy today? God gave it to us in the form of language. And language has rules. The big 
word uh, that relates to Bible study is a word called hermeneutics. It is properly the art and the science of biblical interpretation. In other words, there are rules to follow. And the rules are not some wild out there kind of rule. There are certain preconceived beliefs about the Bible that we have. And honestly, every time I pick up my Bible, I don't have to rehearse them to get started. Such as this. I believe that God communicated to us in His Word. Don't you? Do you have to think that through every time you pick it up? Probably not. I believe the Bible is His Word. I believe the Bible is true. We do. Do we have to go through some sort of routine every time we pick it up to say it's true? Or do we just have that preconceived thought it's true? That's what we understand. It's trustworthy. We're convinced of that too, aren't we? And I would add, the Bible is not confused. The reader can be. But the Bible is not confused because we don't have a confusing God. And the Bible, by the way, does not contradict itself. Well, you may find something and say, Ooh, look at this, Pastor, it's contradictory. I would say, usually the fault is with us first. (laughs) Where we don't understand the context. We don't understand the meaning. We don't put it together correctly. And then we get up with contradictory thoughts because that's the nature of who we are. That's not the nature of our God. Because he orchestrated this. He superintended this. He wrote this through people. A whole bunch of different people over a course of a whole lot of time. And the accuracy is incredible. It's a beautiful book. And I'm not going to argue all that with you this morning because you already know that. So, with that as an understanding, I teach and I preach from the Bible because I believe it's authoritative and I believe it's authentic. And with all that to say, it is all about language, too. There is the science of language to determine the message. We read the words. We have definitions of words. We have verbal tenses. If I use the past tense, you know it's something that happened before. If I talk in the future tense, you know it's something in the future. God spoke that way. He used even verbal tenses and adjectives. He had subjects in a sentence and direct objects. And didn't you love those classes? I love it. Conjunctions. I I mean, they all have value. You put together a sentence and then you pick it apart like a detective picking up pieces of evidence. Even if they're very small, even if they're very insignificant, they're still pieces that are important to the whole picture. And I personally have this view that the right hermeneutic, your approach to studying the Bible, will produce the right interpretation. Basic Bible study that is bad does not lead to good results. And so with all that set before you, here are my essentials. This is where I work from, and this is why you're going to hear what I'm going to share this morning. I believe, number one, in a literal and consistent, literal, understanding of God's Word. It contrasts a non-literal approach, obviously, and an inconsistent use of the Bible. 
And I guarantee you, if you start with a mess, you will end with a mess, and everyone's confused. But I have found in my study that a literal approach and doing it consistently from one end to the other is the way God wants us to understand his word. That's where I always start. And their second essential I have is a distinction clearly cut between Israel and the church. Sometimes when I say that, people get a little confused. And they say, but, but pastor, you're leaving stuff out. Well, uh, there's an understanding to the audience in Bible study that we must have. Who is the Lord speaking to? Who is, who is that individual? Or what time is that individual uh, in, on this planet? And what is the parameters of the history of it all? When you're accurately dividing the word of truth with 2 Timothy 2.15, tells us about. You have to make distinctions. That doesn't nullify the value of any part, you understand. But it is to show that the audience is important too. And we have to keep that in our thinking. So we have a church and we have Israel, and they are not the same thing, and one doesn't take over the other. All right? I also believe, number three, that the overall plan of God in that which relates to all that he does from beginning to end is for his glory. It's for his glory. All that he does has a purpose. The church has a purpose. Israel has a purpose. All the rest from eternity past to eternity future is to reflect God's glory. Your salvation is to reflect God's glory. I won't go into all the details of why that's so important to say it that way, but some people get a little confused there too. This is where I start from, just so you know. This is my platform. I come from a Word of God that I believe authentic, authoritative, and I follow a set of, of rules, practices, in a hermeneutical fashion to come to the conclusions I'm going to give to you today. All right, just so you know, it has a science behind it. Whenever the rapture is discussed, you have to come with certain presuppositions. When you're asked, can you prove the rapture in one verse, simply answer them, oh, that's too simple. Right? God is, is able to do even better things than that. I mean, he could have done it that way, but that's not the way he revealed it to us. To answer those who say that the rapture is not found in the Bible, I say, but you're speaking as if the Bible was only written in English. Some reason we get to that thinking, I don't know why. Is it because that's the only copy we ever carry? We say, oh, it's not in my English Bible, so it must not be true. Oh, pull out your Latin Bible right now. It's called the Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate. It's the Bible in Latin. And if you read 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and you see it, you will see that word rapture. Because it's a Latin term. It's not an English term. It's a Latin term. People say... But the, the, the whole argument is confusing. It's hard to understand. It's divisive. I love that one. It's divisive. It separates churches. It breaks them all apart to talk about the rapture. And so 
Unfortunately, many doctrinal statements today have started to take the concept of the rapture out of their doctrinal statement because they don't want to chase people away by saying that they believe in it. But it's confusing. There's so many people out there with their voices and they're just as passionate about a mid-tribulational rapture as they are in a post-tribulational rapture or whatever else they want to put it in as. And you say, okay, yeah, there's passion. And some people call it confusing. If somebody took the time this morning to go out in the parking lot and gather up your transmission and bring it into this room right now, and take it all apart. Pour it out on the table right in front of us. It'd be kind of messy, but we'd cover the table first, wouldn't we? But they take your transmission and put all the pieces in on that table, and they said, okay, now, put it back together. You might say, I think that's too complicated. Have you ever seen the inside of one of those things? Wow, that's pretty interesting. I mean, there's gears and there's all these other pieces in there and springs and I don't know what else is all there. But all those parts together in a heap doesn't mean a thing to me. I couldn't help you if we had taken it apart. I couldn't help you put it back together again. But I do know this, that if you don't put it back together again, your car's not going to work. It doesn't matter how complicated it is. The fact is, if it's not put together right, it won't work. It won't work. That's the way it's designed. And so when we talk about Scripture and we say, well, this doctrine is very complicated, that's okay. Let it be complicated. But still put it together the right way. And I think it takes somewhat of the complication away too. A proper approach to Bible study, in my opinion but I think I have evidence for this. When you do it the right way, it leads to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church every time. Every time. And still, with those kind of thoughts I introduce you to the topic with, still, the issue is faith. Because as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I can be assured today in what God has promised, even if I don't know the parts and pieces to it. He promised. And I can have my hope in that. I can be convicted that it is true, even though I've never seen it. And I can guarantee you one thing. Nobody in this room has seen the rapture yet. Have you? Surprise me. Anybody? No? Good. But you can believe it. You can have conviction about it, even though you've never seen it. Peter writes in his, his letter how amazed he is at the people who love Christ, though they've never seen him. He says, and you love him? That's amazing. That's a paraphrase. But he's just amazed at people who have never seen Jesus love them. And here, if he stood in our congregation, none of us have seen him. And we love him. We believe his word. We believe his promise. This is what faith has called you to. The righteous man shall live by faith. Not faith in just some things, but faith in what God has said. Faith in it. And if God has said anything about the rapture, guess what? 
We ought to believe it. We ought to believe it. So I'm going to show you what God has said, okay? So we can come back to the issue of faith and see what is it that God is talking about. He spoke concerning the coming of our Savior. That we, as the church, anticipate it. We call it the rapture. R-A-P-T-U-R-E, in case you wonder. You'll find it in Google if you type it in there and ask for definitions. This is what they say. Number one, a feeling of intense pleasure or joy. Okay, yeah, that's the definition of it. Uh, A second one is an expression of intense pleasure and enthusiasm about something. Number three, it has a title North American above it. I'm not sure why. But it says, According to some millennial teaching, the transporting of believers to heaven at the second coming of Christ. You may say, wow, they got a biblical definition. Actually, it's not correct. Because they said the rapture occurs at the second coming of Christ, and that's not, that's not accurate. But anyway, they gave him a good stab, right? Uh, if you keep looking up the word rapture, they will tell you the origin of the word. They say, it's, well, it's from the French, but originally it was from the medieval Latin, raptura, R-A-P-T-U-R-A, which t- later became in English, rapt, R-A-P-T. Now, this Latin term, raptura, meant seizing something, to seize and carry it off, 16th century. To seize and carry it off. Now that's Latin. Alright? And you may say, well, okay, that that sounds kind of powerful. Maybe it's kind of violent. (laughs) It's a term that uh, maybe an animal would use in capturing another animal. To seize it and carry it off. So I'll give you a softer one. Maybe you think the Greek word is better. It's harpazo. Harpazo. It's got in it the touch of a harpoon. All right? Aren't you glad that English theologians didn't use that word instead of the Latin word? The text would have read, and we who are alive and remain will be harpooned into heaven. (laughs) And that sounds very painful. Actually, in my college papers that I would grade... You know, with Word, we have so many advantages with Word programs, but that spell check thing can cause some problems. Your typical Word spell check does not recognize the word rapture. It replaces it with rupture. And you know how many papers I've graded with the rupture of the church in it? And that's painful to read. I've seen it so much, it's, it's laughable. I expect it when I see papers on the rapture that I'm going to find the word rupture in there too. But what does the text say? What does the Bible say? A lot of definitions flying about, but 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is where we start. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, there's our phrase, caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Where do you go with this? You start with simple things. I call this the the important house cleaning technique you've got to do first. The audience is important. Use pronouns. They're there for a reason. You track the pronouns and you find out who is he talking to and who is he talking about. But we, verse 13 says, we. Now, if we track it down, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 is where the we is defined for us in the context. It's talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're the writers. And he says, we do not want you. Who's he writing to? The Thessalonian church, particularly, right? You could find that back in chapter 1, very early. Uh, the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking to them. We, Paul, Silas, Timothy, are writing to you, Thessalonians, believers. He calls them brethren. Brethren. It's a term throughout the New Testament to identify the believers in Jesus Christ. They're called the brethren. And so he goes on to say, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, you got to do a little digging to find out what you mean by asleep. But you can find it not that far away. Verse number 14 talks about these. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now he's a little more specific than just falling asleep. He says falling asleep in Jesus. It's a positional understanding that these are believers who have what? Died. It's a term you could trace it from the book of Acts and to many other places. Even Jesus said that, didn't he, when Lazarus was in the tomb. Lazarus is asleep. They said, well, then let's not go wake him up. He says, oh, he's dead. So, it's a term consistent in Scripture, and we can mark that simply and just keep moving. All right? So, he's writing to them, so about those who are dead, who are believers, who have died, they've fallen asleep in Jesus. All right? He says, so that Paul and Silas and Timothy are writing for a purpose. So that you, Thessalonian believers, will not grieve as do the rest, who have no hope. And that's unbelievers. I don't want you, Paul's writing to them, we don't want you to look like people who have no faith. Who have no hope. Because you're different. Because you do have it. You're believers in Jesus Christ. So, what we have unpacked is just a couple of verses here. The audience is the believers in Jesus Christ identified as a church if we go throughout the whole New Testament here. He's not talking to Israel. 
And he's certainly not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church believers, right? So far? Okay, church believers. Verse 14. For if, if, oh, you know what I'm going to do right there. This is a Greek word, I. E-I is how we spell it. It speaks of reality. It's not the if, like, if I get up in the morning, I'll go to church. Did you think that way? Hope not. Um, but it is the word since. It is, speaks of reality. And this really gives it a pack, a powerful pack in, in the word that it says here. For it, it says, since we believe. Since we believe. All right? He's not saying if we believe. He's saying since. Since this is true, then this is the next step. This is what will happen. And suddenly it's a we, and Paul and Timothy and Silas are talking together with the church. They're all standing together and say now, grammatically, if we, no, since we believe, what? Jesus died and rose again. That is true, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we believe it, don't we? So put a sense in front of it, not an if. If we believe, no, no, no. Since we believe this is true, and stop right there and listen. You see what Paul is using suddenly to stress the truthfulness of a rapture passage? This is so powerful. If the rapture isn't true, then why would he ever link it to the death and the resurrection of Christ? For if the rapture isn't true, then the death and the resurrection of Christ isn't true either. You want the strongest argument in the whole book? It's right there. By just what he links it to. Without the death and the resurrection, we have no hope. We have no hope. Without the death and the resurrection, we have no hope in the rapture. But since there is a death... And since there is a resurrection and they are true, guess what? The rapture is too. That's his link. I said, wow, Paul, that's pretty strong. And what does he go on to say? Since we believe in the death and the resurrection of Christ, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, think for a minute. If God brings them... And them are those who have died in Jesus. If he brings them when Christ comes for his church, where are they now? They're with him. Those are the sweetest words, aren't they? Those are the sweetest words to read. You can't... You, you have to be there in order to come. The dead in Christ are there. You can't bring somebody who isn't there. He says, I'll bring them. When the Savior comes, they will come too. That means they're with him now. And Scripture is consistent about that. And you know what that does to each and every one of our hearts, to have a believer who's passed on to see the Lord. Guess where they are right now? They're with the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love it. I love it. 
all the things that pack around this. Here's the point. You can't just take the rapture and study it as it's one little thing all by itself. It is linked to everything else. The truth of God's word, the fact that God spoke it, the truth of the life of Christ, his death, his resurrection, our hope, the dead who in Christ are with him. All these things are all attached. Pull it out and you're pulling the hub out of the wheel. And all the spokes just fall apart. You can't just say, but I believe everything but the rapture. Because you just said that you're going to ignore the heart of what this passage is telling to you right now. It's dealing with a lot more than the rapture. It's dealing with the things you believe. The things you believe. And this is how he adds to it. In case you're not convinced yet, verse 15. Now this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Whose testimony is it? It's God's. This isn't made up by Paul. This wasn't something he had because he ate too much pepperoni pizza or something. This is God's word. This is what the Lord told me, he says. That we, Paul, Timothy, Silas, the church believers, who are alive and remain, and all of us are hoping for that, aren't we? Yes. Until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. That's the dead in Christ. For the Lord himself, I love that word himself right there. He's not sending an ambassador. He's not sending an angel. He's not saying, Michael, go get him. He didn't say, David, David, you, you and Samuel and Daniel. Daniel, you talked about this a lot. You, Daniel, uh, you guys go get him. He says, I'm going myself. They're mine. That's my bride. I'm going to go get her. This is cool. The Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel. With the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. People say, is that the first trumpet? They go into Revelation and they're trying to figure out first trumpet, second trumpet, seven trumpets. What is it? Which trumpet is this? Which one? This is the first one you're ever here. All right? It's the first one you're ever here. It's the first one the church will ever hear and the only one the church will ever hear. But the Lord will come down with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Speaking of their bodies, because they were with Him, right? So they come down and they're joined with their bodies. And you may say, well, why is that all true? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 explains that a little better. We're not going into that today. But you have to have a body. God designed it so. And he's going to do this. And I can't explain all of this because I haven't been there yet. But somehow believers in heaven right now have something that resembles a body. I know that because Samuel appeared. And Samuel and Elijah appeared, and Moses appeared, and they were all in body form. But none of their bodies had been resurrected. Elijah maybe is different. Moses, others. We have instances of people who were visibly seen after they died, and how do you recognize them? Name tags? I don't know. Maybe that flannel graph's going to pay off after all. But the fact is, 
1 Corinthians says you need the body and it's got to be changed. Because it's not made to fit into heaven, it's made to handle the earth. And God says, well, I've got to change it so it can fit into my environment and not down here. So he's going to change it. We'll talk about that sometime. But what we have here is they, believers who have died in Jesus, the term for church believers, not an Old Testament believer, the church age believer. The Old Testament believer has a different resurrection promise, by the way. They have something else that God has planned for them. So again, let's keep that distinct. But we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That's our loved ones who died in Christ. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's not coming to the earth. He's not going to touch down on the planet. That's why this is a different thing than the second coming. And so shall we always be with the Lord. That's we, the church, the believers. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Does it work? Precious, precious words. Now, he is specifically teaching the church. Specifically. It's not a promise to Israel, and you will never find the rapture in the Old Testament. It cannot even be found in the Gospels. And that's where a lot of people go looking. Because Jesus wasn't talking about the church. He was talking to Israel, the Jews. The teaching of the rapture was solely given to the church. Because that's God's plan for the church. It's different from the plans for all the other groups. And that's okay. I don't mind that. I mean, I'm not saying that we're better. If you put it out chronologically, God gives a lot more attention to Israel than he does to the church. Plus, the volume of scripture speaks more about Israel than it does to the church. It's just this is God's plan for the church. And so don't confuse it with the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ has its own purpose. We'll talk about it more when we get there, but it pertains primarily to the Jews, to Israel, and it has to do with punishment of the world, and it's nothing to do with catching up the church into the sky. Nothing at all. Won't go into that whole passage, but as I said in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul emphasized change for the church. We're going to be changed. We must undergo that when the Christ comes for us at that time, because he simply says, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, it could be any time. In a twinkling of an eye, before you even blink your eye at that trumpet, the last one for us, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable must put on imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality, and when this perishable has put on the imperishable, and this mortal has put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Those are the promises. What's the difference? Well, a second coming, for example, he comes to rescue the Jews from annihilation at the end of the tribulation period. Zechariah teaches that, chapter 12, 13, 14. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 deals with that. Many other passages. A lot of them are Old Testament passages, which were for the Jews, and it was to confirm this. 
The beautiful fact is this, that the whole will be saved. Israel as a whole. I, I'm just waiting for this day. The whole of Israel will be saved physically and spiritually when Christ comes at the second coming. That is not the rapture of the church. That is not. He also comes at the second coming to punish the Antichrist and the armies of the world, to set up his kingdom on the earth, to rule over the earth for a thousand years with a rod of iron. That's not the rapture. That's not what you heard in those passages I read. Has nothing to do with the church, the second coming. Except the word be present. It's going to be kind of fun. But the tribulation is designed to punish to correct the Jew, to show their need of a Savior, finally get them to call on Him to save them. The tribulation is designed to punish this world for its evilness, and I think it's getting close to that point now. He's going to bring a series of the most severe things that has ever happened to this planet, and that has nothing to do with the church. The church is unique in God's plan. It has a purpose It has a time on this earth that's limited by the great plan of God. Whatever it is that He has set up, uh, we have to be careful to not mix our purpose with the purposes He has for Israel or the purpose He has for the unsaved world. All that just to show you that we are expecting a glorious thing. The rapture of the church is amazing. It's amazing. We're going to go meet him in the air, folks. And it says, and we'll stay with him forever. Forever. When could that happen? It can happen at any time because there's nothing to set the table for it. All you need is a church. It doesn't have anything to do with time. And God didn't give us a timetable. And I'm glad he didn't. Because if you knew it was next November, what are you going to do for the next year? You see, we plan for things, don't we? Some people, in various ways, plan for things. One would say, well, then I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to pay this mortgage anymore. I'm not going to be here in a year. Some people think that way. Unfortunately, some believers do. God says, don't, don't tell them the day. Don't tell them the time. Don't tell them the hour. Just tell them, the Lord is coming. What do you have to do with that? It says, live by faith. Live by faith. Let me show you the link. You ready? I promise this. I could do this in just a few moments. Go over to Titus, just a few books away. Second Thessalonians, Timothy, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus chapter number two. Titus chapter two, verse eleven. It starts this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, oh, that's believers, that's the church, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what we're supposed to be. Until what? Well, hang on. Looking... Looking for the blessed hope. This word looking that just pops up in verse 13, it's what we call a present participle. 
While we're down on this earth doing our thing of denying ungodliness and, and worldly desires and living sensibly, living righteously, living godly in this present age, while we're doing this, we're to be looking kind of people. Looking, waiting confidently, waiting patiently, but waiting nonetheless. Constantly waiting, constantly looking. You know where you've seen this word before? It was a man named Simeon who is said of him that he was looking for the coming of the Messiah. Same word. What he had to do by faith, guess what you have to do? Keep looking. For this next coming, we have to keep looking just like he looked for that blessed hope. See, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You can't take faith out of the picture, can you? He redeemed us, the scripture says. Aren't you glad for that? Of course you are. He redeemed us. But he's not finished yet. He still has something he has set out to do. He, yes, he's redeemed us, as it says. He brings salvation to all men. And yet he says, I'm going to come for them. They should be looking for me. This is their blessed hope. Because he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. Jesus wants us with him. That just amazes me every time I think about it. He wants us there. You think he's delaying because he's saying, nah, I don't think I want him yet. <laughs> I don't think that's on his heart. He's looking forward to this probably a thousand times more than we are. So why do I believe in the rapture of the church? I just summarized a few things with you this morning. It's simply this. God promised it. God promised it. You just read it with me. Faith in His Word keeps me expecting that Christ is coming at any moment. It's right there in front of me. I believe these things are true. And that's why I hold to them. That's why I teach them. That's why I'm looking for it. Are you? He's coming. He's coming. That's the coming we anticipate. So, keep walking by faith, folks. Keep walking by faith. Believe it. And live like you believe it. This world needs examples like that, don't they? And you can be that example. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. How do we unpack such big things in such short time? But your word is fantastic. When we go into it and we start to look at it, there's something like the Emmaus disciples said that warms us on the inside. Because it's your word. And your word is true. And you lovingly gave it to us so that we would have hope. And we need hope, Lord. And you told us to believe it. Live by faith in that hope, that blessed hope that Jesus is coming. We can practice that now. Lord, work in our hearts. If we're confused, if we're, if we're just discouraged about the times, Set our eyes on you. Set our eyes on you. Help us to look to you. From there we find our strength, our stability, our confidence. We find our hope for the future. 
We see all these things tied together in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, for loving us, for dying for us, and giving us this hope. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.